I've met a lot of people who their thing is look like an entrepreneur, be a boss. And if that's what your goal is, bringing on someone as a co-founder to drive the bus for you is not a good idea. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. We are we are back. Here we are. Welcome back to the podcast, boss man. Here's the theme. I've been walking around, pacing around the living room. You know how I do it? Just a cup of coffee in hand. What is this about? What does it all mean? And there's some really fresh thinking in today's episode, like concepts I've never heard of that when I first heard of them, I was like, they were so specific. I was like, well, maybe that doesn't apply to me. And then they just kept, I was like, oh man, these are incredibly valuable. So let me try to sum up what we're going to talk about today. It's essentially this. In the bootstrapped space, we talk way too much about having a nice little tidy process and getting people to work for us and getting them inspired and getting some VAs and building a nice cohesive team and just retaining all the equity and building a great little lifestyle business. And the theme of today's episode is if you're looking for growth, if you're looking for evolution in your business, It's on you to find creative and innovative ways to build stakeholders, partnerships, and alliances with people that know what the heck they're doing, that actually have demonstrated track record. And the problem with people with demonstrated track record is they're pretty hard to make alliances with, right? Relatively speaking. I mean, it's easy to go on a job board like Dynamite Jobs, post a job for somebody that does a basic process and get that person. But what about at the top level of your company? What about when you're stuck and you don't know the next thing to do? How do you get to the next level with an alliance? That's the theme of today's episode. What do you think about that, boss man? Did my pacing pay off? I think your pacing paid off, and I do think it's a big problem. It's also the reason why I have a co-founder. I happen to find each other early in the game, but as Tommy's going to explain, it doesn't always happen that way. And I do think that it's challenging to figure out like, after you've already built something, after you already have momentum, how do you bring in another shareholder? tricky, right? Because you already have all this momentum. You already have a cash flow. You already have parts and pieces moving around. You already probably think that you are the most valuable person in this organization because you've created it all. (laughs) And it can only survive with you in charge. But our man Tommy figured out another way. Yeah. Keep your eyes open for some fresh thinking, for some concepts like effective equity, some thinking around fairness, and a lot more that we found, Ian, at our recent event, DC Mexico, when Tommy spoke about these ideas that even if it wasn't immediately applicable, it almost got everyone's brain spinning about how they could get more powerful contributors involved in their organization. So now this isn't the first time Tommy's been on the show. The first time nearly five years ago, he talked amusingly about setting up his business click-minded as a Saturday morning side hustle while he was still in his day job as the head of SEO at Airbnb. One of the things Tommy's always done with click-minded, Ian, is he's use it as a Petri dish to experiment with ideas about how he wanted to run a business, how he saw the world going. He's ended up in some really interesting spaces, and today's episode is no exception. The talk was titled, 
The mid-game wildcard, adding a late co-founder to your business when you're trapped, cornered, and surrounded. What's so fascinating is that Tommy built a business that was basically based around his personal brand, Ian, and his skill set. And it was, you know, what he shared in the talk was it essentially by opening up this sense of, hey, this is all mine by bringing on a stakeholder, he was able to more than double the business. That's the story we're going to hear today. I started off this conversation by asking Tommy about the context for taking on a co-founder relatively late into ClickMinded's trajectory. A lot of the times we, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're just someone listening, we think that like that everything's set in stone and there's certain ways to do things and like there's a blueprint somewhere, I just have to find it, right? It's kind of like how we're wired. And it turns out you can just make stuff up. <laughs> like it turns out you can go off the grid, you can go rogue. And it wasn't because I was trying to go rogue or trying to go off the grid or be a TEDx speaker, right? Or anything like that. Like it wasn't anything like that. It was the circumstances. I quit my job. I went all in on my business. I wasn't good enough. I needed a co-founder. The economics of bringing on a co-founder and giving them equity in a cash-strapped, bootstrapped lifestyle business made no sense. And the circumstances forced me into a position to, I guess the word would be innovate. But uh, really, it was stay alive <laughs> from my perspective. And it ended up working out. I'd like to walk through the process for how you did this, which I think is very interesting and unique. But give us a sense for the narrative. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about ClickMinded and what you guys were up to as these ideas started to evolve. ClickMinded is a series of digital marketing training courses for marketers and entrepreneurs. We now also do a number of resources for digital marketing consultants and agencies, SOPs, checklists, things like that. But it didn't start that way. It started as a search engine optimization training course, an in-person course that I eventually made into an online course and tried to go full-time on it and it really didn't work. The context was I just wasn't capable enough. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't ready. And Eduardo, my now co-founder, was someone I had worked with previously. I used to teach an elective at a graduate school in San Francisco. He was an MBA student of mine. He was an apprentice for me for a while, and I messaged him kind of out of the blue about a year after we worked together and said, like, hey, bud, uh, what are you doing? Do you want to uh, quit your job, join this company with me, and go like on a five-year disaster train wreck with me? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> so we kind of worked through that, and we had to figure out how to go about doing that. And I also had to figure out how do you incentivize someone who has a ton of options? You trust someone, you want to work with someone, you think they're capable, how do you get them to come with you when you, when you don't even know yourself if it's going to work out? And so the circumstances sort of led us to the situation where Eduardo was interested in it. It was a big risk. You know, he's not American, he's from Venezuela. He had a green card and was working for an H-1B visa and was, could work towards a green card. That's a huge deal for anyone in the world who's interested in becoming a U.S. citizen. But for Venezuelans, that's, that's a massive deal. But he had other motivations as well. His girlfriend lived in Europe. He was very interested in having autonomy, creating a product vision. 
he felt very passionately about higher education in general. And we basically both agreed that higher education is a scam. And so we had a lot of sort of similar beliefs in the sense, and all of his particular motivations were kind of lined up with mine, and it made sense. But I had to probe that for a while. It wasn't just like, what's the dollar amount? Where are the stock options? How much quinoa and like kombuchas in the break room? It wasn't stuff like that. It was a lot more emotional. And I think it's worth pointing out to the audience that, I mean, you are a militant. You look pretty laced up and you got a good pedigree and a good business, but you're willing to hit the streets with a crazy sign panel saying, defund the academy. You're not just teaching marketing skills to companies, but you actually believe that going to school for business education is not a great value. Where's my soapbox? (laughs) Post that thing up. I got something to say. (laughs) I think we, a hundred years from now, people are going to be learning on their Kindles that the higher education Ponzi scheme that went on in the United States was the most egregious criminal enterprise that ever existed. Maybe that's a story for another day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about your specific road, Tommy, because I'm looking at a revenue graph here. And in 2016, after five years of side hustle, it looks like, you know, the revenue figure looks like a professional salary at a tech company. 2017, it looks like you doubled and then continued strong growth. And then you doubled in 2021. And so this promise of company ownership that you could own something that just doubles and then doubles from the doubling is sort of the idea. It's sort of that belief that you have to maintain the whole time while you're jumping and you're failing that the difference between what I'm doing right now and what I was doing before is that I'm not subjected to four or 10% raises or whatever. I am subject to doubling events. How did it happen? What's it feel like? It's cool to talk to you about this. And this is one of the reasons why I love all DC events. Everyone kind of picks a weird path. And I just love those weird hallway sidebar conversations that, that happen all weekend. And there was a lot of that. And it's cool to be able to talk to you about this because I don't, yeah, I've never, I've never shared this stuff. I've never like openly talked about it now that I think about it. I don't know. I'm in two different camps on this. On one hand, like, yeah, you're right. It's a bootstrapped lifestyle business that I started with a $10 domain I bought in 2011 <laughs> that is larger than I had ever thought it could be right now. But in another context, you know, for more serious investors and, and people like that, it hasn't been a good investment. (laughs) 10 years to get it to where it's at. I mean, I don't even want to go down this road of crypto and NFTs and SPACs and all these other things that's going on. But you could, it's fascinating because something like this, you could objectively say, this is incredible. And actually, this was a giant waste of time in the same breath. And you'd be right. Now, don't get me wrong. I think what I do things differently, like if I could go back in time, I would probably do it the same way. And the reason why is because it's mine. And I don't mean mine, Tommy mine. I mean, anyone listening who has a lifestyle business or is thinking about one, it's proverbially yours. It's proverbially mine, right? It's the boat I built. And we've done things constantly that don't, wouldn't make sense for investors. Like what? We've probably gotten two to 10 consulting and agency type requests every week for eight years straight. 
if we were really trying to max out on revenue, we would build an ad agency. We would do other people's digital marketing, right? But in my opinion, and this isn't agencies can be a great way to start a business. They can be great to get into the industry, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what Eduardo wanted to do. And we really did build, it really was a lifestyle business for the first while. It really was designed to allow me to travel, allow him to be with his girlfriend, allow us to test interesting hypotheses around how we thought the world should be. And it really became not just like a revenue machine, but like a boat we were living in and trying to uh, canoe to the next spot. You know what I mean? How did you know that you weren't good enough? A few weeks ago, I was doing things for the business, Dynamite Jobs, and I, I just thought to myself, I suck at this. I'm kind of lost here. I'm disappointed at my contribution. I'm not moving any needles. I don't know how it occurred to me. And, but I'm looking at your story, and there was this moment where you're like, I need a co-founder. I need somebody, maybe not a co-founder, but I need somebody that's an adult to come in here and help me. How do you recognize it? Question for you. like When you were thinking that the other day, did you come to a conclusion? Did you decide to give that task to someone else or outsource it or hire someone, or did you power through it? No, I didn't power through. I just thought, I'm not actually good at this work. Like, I suck at this, this channel marketing stuff. Sometimes, like, you get the marketing tasks in the company because, like, oh, Dan's done marketing in the past, but I just realized it's a different style of marketing. I'm not, I'm more interested in narrative and branding and stuff like that. And when it comes to channel partners and marketing, just not good at it. And so, just recognizing that we needed to find somebody who was good at it. Not just somebody who's willing, but somebody who brings that track record into the organization. It was a feeling of like, you know, trying to do the right thing. Like, I, I'm supposed to do this. I know I'm supposed to do it. Like, all the adults tell me that this is what we need to do. And I'm trying to do it. And I'm just like, I suck. Do you think that you would have been able to say that about yourself when you were just getting started? I don't know, because it depends like how much organizational scale you have. So when I was just getting started, there was like not an option to like have these sorts of concerns, I suppose. It was just about bringing in revenue or nothing. So it's interesting. I think for me, it was a combination of confidence and desperation. For example, now it's been 10 years, we've done a bunch of different things, and I'm extremely confident when I suck. It's extremely transactional when I suck. We talk about me sucking like it's the weather, right? It's not personal. It's not emotional. It's the to-do list. More recently, right, we just hired a guy that we've been working with for, for many years, just coming over now and is running the business. We kind of hired a, a CEO at ClickMind, Andre. He's now running, our, running the company. And someone, a content marketer, we hired Sam. She's amazing. She's really, really good. I sort of did a meeting with her about a month after Andre was hired. And I said, Hey, how's it going? You know, you're reporting to Andre now. How's he doing? How's everything? And she's usually pretty quiet and reserved. And she kind of looked at me and said, he is so much better than you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was telling my mom about this and she was saying, Oh, I, I'm sure she didn't mean that. I'm sure she didn't mean that this and that. And I was trying to explain to my mom, like, no, 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 this is a really good thing. This means we hired the right person. This means I wasn't doing things well. And it's just, it's a lot more matter of fact. Once you're not, your ego doesn't get as bruised, right? Back in the day, I was not confident at all. I was scared. I was really, really scared. But it came down to desperation. 
I bought a one-way ticket to Bali. I had a laptop. I invested in expanding our product. I quit my job. I gave away my apartment, gave away everything I had, and it had to work. I was going back to that couch in my parents' home in this tiny little no-name town in New Hampshire if I couldn't make it work. And that was not an option for me. So knowing when you suck, I would say now it's more about being confident enough to admit it. But if you don't have that confidence yet and you're just getting started, desperation is a really good tool. Today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the number one digital marketplace for entrepreneurs. That's right. They're a marketplace and a great way to get your name in front of 1 million plus entrepreneurs, founders, affiliate marketers, and small businesses. You can sell your software, ebook, PDF, template library, online course, WP plugin, extension, or even event tickets. And get this, in classic AppSumo fashion, they are giving away their entire 1 million Black Friday marketing budget to their creators. If you list your product on AppSumo between September 15th and November 17th, the first 400 offers to go live will receive $1,000. The next 2,000 to list their product will get 250 and everyone who lists gets entered to be one of the 10 lucky winners of $10,000. How cool is that? I definitely listed my book on the AppSumo marketplace. So check it out and list your product at AppSumo.com slash TMBA. And many thanks to AppSumo for sponsoring the show. So I've spoken with a lot of people at DC Max. When you're selling a business, one of the most common concerns is telling your staff that you're no longer going to be there and that there will be a new owner. It is a very common pattern in the listenership of this show that the employees are overjoyed at the new ownership. Not overjoyed, but you know what I mean? Like the same exact thing that you're expressing right now. And I'd like to flag that up because this was Ian and I's enormous concern. It turns out that our old employees really enjoyed the energy and professionalism of the new owner. This is a common, common theme, and it's only to suggest that starting things isn't the same as running things. And one of the amazing things about your story, and part of the reason I'm so passionate about telling it today, is that you still own your company. And I really wish that I still own my company, Tommy, that I risked lifting on my mom's couch for. And so let's talk about how you did it. The first step is that you recognize that you weren't good enough, you went all in, and you agreed with Eduardo, your new co-founder, that you would collaborate on a launch together and that if it worked, he would jump ship. Is that how it went down? Yeah, that's how it went down. He got a very cool, awesome job at an ed tech startup in New York called Teachable. Uh, we're actually customers of them. And he was doing really well. He was running the content marketing there. And I said, hey, do you want to leave that stable, secure job where you could eventually get a green card in the US and hop on this lifeboat, which is like currently popped and has some duct tape on it? And uh, it was really interesting because he had a number of things in his mind that were a big concern. Was was this going to work? Can we validate this? And we basically said, okay, what if you stick with your job? We try them the best we can. It was essentially work together on a project basis for a flat rate dollar amount or a percentage of, of whatever the revenue is, kind of like do a Kickstarter, quote unquote, do a launch. And if we can hit a certain revenue threshold, that'll inspire enough confidence for me to offer you equity and you to quit. 
it's a really nice way. A number of people after the conference came up to me and said, this didn't sound relevant to me and it didn't sound interesting to me until you said that you guys were able to kind of trial run it. You, you were able to work on a project basis because it gives you an escape hatch. The two big concerns that people seem to have around this is I don't want to give someone equity and then they walk away or I don't want to give someone equity and they're not a good fit. And so you've solved for both of these, essentially, not just through the project basis. That's exactly right. And so we did that project. It worked out. Eduardo quit his job. And we've been working together for the last four years ever since. Okay, so let's talk about some of the details. Tommy's not a lawyer. You're just an innovative entrepreneur. I would like to talk about the concept of effective equity. Where did it come from? The idea here is... Everyone has in their mind a way to structure incentives. And it's usually, what did you read about what Y Combinator is doing? What do startups do? Where's this blog post about a, a Delaware C corporation and issuing shares? And I saw the movie, The Social Network. So now I got to issue shares, right? The reality is, most lifestyle cash flow businesses don't have that and they shouldn't have that. Sorry to interrupt your flow here, but. John Solorzano was on the show a few weeks ago talking about how he bought out an investor. In my view, that investor was naive, thinking that people in our community are like San Francisco startups. And John had to you know, buy out his equity because now you're chunking into someone's income. I wrote a blog post back in 2012, Why I Won't Start a Lifestyle Business Incubator. And it was the same deal. Like You're more like a tax man collecting people's you know, salaries, competing with their child's educations. It's not like something that has the potential to IPO, which is when you go like Delaware C Corp. Like that's why they do all that stuff. What I think is so cool about what you're doing is you're offering solutions to this problem. There's a reason why we're all groping for the Delaware C Corp is because we we generally want to do similar things, but at a different scale. That's exactly right. It's a concept. The kind of issue shares, everyone has equity, incentives are aligned, and this will all work out because big companies do it. It only works in your head. When you get down to it and you're funding your expenses on your credit card and everything's going through your personal laptop and <laughs> you're moving things around like that, it's, it's just not how the world works. On top of this, I think another really interesting point, I mean, there are a number of you know, venture-backed Silicon Valley startups who have the same problem of a founder leaving. They raise millions of dollars. They have a hypothesis they want to test. They have a bunch of people. And then six months in or two years in, somebody bails with 10% of the equity. Surprise, surprise, all motivation in the office goes to zero. Everyone's grumpy. They can't get rid of the guy. And it's a prisoner's dilemma situation. And then just the company implodes. This is not specifically a lifestyle business problem. It did need to be solved for lifestyle businesses, but apparently it happens to anyone early stage. Let's like then like lay out the idea of effective equity and how it differs from real equity. The idea here was Eduardo and I tested whether or not we could work together. We did a Kickstarter-style launch that worked. We basically said, we are expanding to seven courses. We're going to be the best in the game. Sign up now before they're even done, and you'll be the first one in, right? And it worked, and we couldn't believe it worked. And we were like, oh my God, they trust us. Okay, we got to do this now. Right, here we go. So this all worked out, but I was still in the same predicament of like, Eduardo has a lot of options. He's really good. All of his very valuable skills are incredibly complementary to me. We are not the same person. We are, in fact, total opposites. 
And we weren't friends either. We are very much colleagues. I really like the guy. I actually probably want to be friends with him more than he wants to be friends with me. (laughs) (laughs) We are incredibly different people, but everything he's good at, I'm really bad at. So how do you incentivize someone like that? And the way what we basically came up with was effective equity. And the basic idea is Eduardo's a co-founder. He gets equity. He gets a dividend every quarter, just like a co-founder or an investor would. He also gets that same dividend if we ever exit. From the paperwork perspective, it's different. And there's two big things. The first is he's effectively a contractor. He's a contractor who happens to invoice the company for the amount of his dividend every quarter. If we ever exited, he would happen to be a contractor who invoices for his share in the company. The key is if he quits, he loses everything. And this worked out because I would never want him to quit. But if he does, all the equity comes back. Now, anyone who's listening and they're trying to poke holes in this and you're saying, wait a minute, there's a lot of edge cases where this doesn't work out. And the answer is yes, absolutely. There's plenty of flaws in this. This is not legal advice. You would be very dumb to take any of this as as legal advice. But one sort of element we added was this kind of clause where like... This is the Zuckerberg clause? This is the Zuckerberg clause. So Mark Zuckerberg famously kind of apparently, I don't know the full story, but apparently screwed over one of his co-founders at the 11th hour when this big money investors came in and took away all of his equity or paid him out a much smaller amount or whatever it was. And this was a big concern I had. I thought, man, he's going to quit his job and I could technically quote unquote fire him at the 11th hour and take all his equity away because this isn't really ironed out. I remember talking to lawyers about this and they always said like, Contracts are designed for when things are going bad. You're supposed to design contracts for the bad times, like when you're at each other's throats, right? Of course, lawyers are always going to say, you know, you haven't lawyered up enough. Your contracts aren't ironclad enough. Ultimately, I wanted to add this in and say like, hey, like, let's say I quote unquote fired you at the 11th hour, you would still get paid out the amount we agreed to for two years after the date you're quote unquote fired. And I wrestled with this for weeks and months And it was just so funny because when I finally brought it up to Eduardo, he was like very dismissive of it. He really didn't care because he didn't view it as a threat. And he kind of knew he was like, you are so hopeless without me. So this is fine. This is no big deal. So I do think that this proposal, it might not work for everyone. I've seen, you know, threads in the DC and, you know, like fights on Twitter and other things like this where people say, hey, I started a business with this person. We've been working together for two months and we're already ready to, to kill each other. He's stealing from me, and I said this about him. And it's like, if you're going down that road already, you're in really bad territory. You're in deep water. Yeah. Building these businesses takes so long, and it's so much work. And if you're just getting started on your journey and you already hate each other, just walk away. Just walk away, you know? I have a friend. I I won't out him for his wisdom, but he said, having kids is so hard that if you're, y'all are fighting like before you have kids, don't even proceed. That is such good advice. And that is perfectly applicable to cash flow businesses as well. So the innovation, the idea is like, you're basically saying, look, the problem is, is like, I make this one-time decision for this person that I haven't worked with for five years and I've already put in tons of work. And so I'm going to make it contingent on it's going to look like equity so long as they're here. That's essentially the innovation. That's it. 
And that's good enough. That's kind of the point. In your case, you found that to be good enough for a highly educated, super smart, capable professional. That's exactly right. And it was very much a kind of handshake agreement situation. And now here we are. Eduardo has roughly 10x the business from the moment he joined. And our incentives are so unbelievably aligned. I would say the product and the company is way more his than mine now. There's no way he would want to leave now. It's been way too much work. You talk about the Zuckerberg clause and mutually assured destruction. I also think it's worth noting that you say Eduardo is the back end and Tommy is the front end. So on the show, we've called this a seller and reaper relationship. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think another really interesting way to solve this problem, if you're sitting here, you're listening to the show and you're thinking, okay, I'm looking for a co-founder who has complementary skills. The way it's sort of gone down is like, because of the way we've built the business, at least for the first few years, if you're thinking about the worst case scenario, it's kind of impossible to quote unquote, screw each other over. We're doing things that are so fundamentally outside of each other's wheelhouse. You don't sort of have to have a moral reason to not like screw the person over. It's like a logical and business and financial reason not to. Structural. A structural reason not to quote unquote, screw each other over. So to translate some of this for the audience, I mean, you're literally selling your face and charisma and expertise through a lot of your product. It's you buy a video of Tommy teaching you how to do stuff, right? That's pretty hard to replicate. It's extremely hard to replicate. But on top of that, you know, our back end and all the systems we use and all of the ways that different applications talk to each other was the product of four years of Eduardo, you know, taking a hundred different online courses, looking at other people's strategies, implementing things that he wanted to implement, writing so many different automations. And it's so hilariously impossible for me to even begin to dive into some of the stuff he's done. Now we are like kind of systemizing and sort of setting up lots of different SOPs and procedures to deal with this. And we now have a CEO who's running it. And we are sort of getting away from it being entirely reliant on us. But now we're four years in, we've started a second company together. We're so far away from, quote unquote, screwing each other over that we don't have to rely on that I'm the front end, you're the back end sort of structure anymore. It's more like, this is my business partner. It's not even a question that it's that we don't know who each other are, what each other are motivated by, and sort of the best way to work together. You mentioned to ask for a lot. You mentioned there's a bit of an epidemic in our community of having low expectations for our coworkers. Yeah, so I think, and you know, pay all tribute to our Lord and Savior, Tim Ferriss, and the four-hour work week, right? And, and all the <laughs> digital nomad kind of like start of how all this started, right? I know we're all way, we're kind of past that now. And the quote-unquote digital nomad brand has changed a lot. But yeah, I think low-cost labor, of course, has a place. And outsourcing and remote jobs, they'll have their place. But there is a problem. There's a disease in our community, which is that a lot of people look at every single person they work with as margin, as someone they can leverage, as someone who can do this for as cheap as possible so that I can bank as, as much as possible. If you're trying to hire an army of VAs that can do Photoshop stuff for you, then maybe that's fine. 
But we took a different route. And I don't think we took a different route because it's morally superior or any of this other stuff. It's, I honestly think it's cheaper and more efficient to hire a smaller number of high-quality, well-paid people that are given autonomy, basic rules and guidelines, and goals over like a medium term. And it wasn't because I knew that that's exactly how we should do it. It was because I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) It was because my basic plan was hire people smarter than me and ask them what we should do. And I do think that a lot of people that are starting a lifestyle business, they're finding that VA on Upwork for $7 an hour, and then they can't believe it when they don't come up with marketing strategies that double the business. And it's like, all right, well, whose problem is that? That's no one's problem but yours. And that's the kind of conclusion I came to, and so far it seems to be working. Let me take a moment to talk about our recruiting services at Dynamite Jobs. If you're thinking about hiring, our team can help you be more strategic. If you're in the middle of a time-consuming candidate campaign, we can take it off your plate. And if your HR team is having difficulty delivering the right team members, we can be their support. See strategy, positioning, promotion, filtering, interviewing, and assessing. They are all a tremendous amount of very important work, even for organizations with seasoned HR teams. But our expert team does it every day, all day. And it's not just our expertise you'll be accessing. We run one of the largest remote job boards and databases of qualified candidates on the web. Why not work directly with a team who hires hundreds of A players annually for businesses just like yours? So if you run a remote first company, we can help you grow faster and smarter. And the best part is we charge just one simple flat fee for every hire. And with Dynamite Jobs Recruiting, your results are guaranteed. To learn more about how we can help you grow, head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on the Hire With Us link. You do some comparison of traditional co-founders and what you're calling a late co-founder. So essentially what you're saying is like you get a little bit of a better deal as the founder because you've taken all the upfront risk off the table, essentially provided the late co-founder with product market fit. Yeah, so I actually don't know if it's a better deal or not for the early co-founder or the late co-founder. And that's actually what I kind of love about this. The idea here is you're the original founder. You get the product up. I think the absolute minimum that you can pull this off at is somewhere around a 5,000 person email list and a $25,000 a year revenue business. That number might change in the future. I originally thought maybe it was double that. But the basic idea here is... There's so many simple tools you can use to get things going, to test things out, that if you're kind of the front-facing marketing side person, you have to be able to at least get something going if you're looking for that kind of engineer later on. At least that's how it worked out for me. So operations engineer, essentially like, you know, typically a business will get traction through a marketing channel. So you as a marketer say, hey, I'm putting my videos up on YouTube. And people are watching them, and then they're buying $25,000 worth of courses. Now you're in a prime position to go out and offer effective equity to an engineer or to an operator who can help you scale the business. Exactly right. And that engineer should be able to come in and say, should we bring this in-house and put it on our site? Can we run split testing and increase pricing? Should we be setting up email automations? Someone who can 
understand who the customer avatar is and then help you build systems around it. This is going to be very dependent on the industry you're in. I'm talking in the context of online courses or a digital product in general. But yeah, that's sort of where we were at. And the idea here was Eduardo didn't come in with 50% equity like a normal co-founder would, but he de-risked his situation a lot. What was his percentage when he first came in, Tommy? So Eduardo came in and I offered him 20% of the business on the spot from day one. No vesting. The first day he was there, he got 20% of the business. It was in year five of getting started. And specifically, by the terms of effective equity that you laid out, that means he's getting 20% of the dividend. Correct. So every quarter, we would have a sort of like a quarterly statement, and he would be getting 20% of the profit every quarter. A lot of people are going to say, well, that's pretty expensive, Tommy. Why don't I just hire somebody instead of bringing on a co-founder? You mentioned, I want to read back your words to you, someone who signs up to solve a very specific problem for you, that's a staff member. Someone who signs up to go to war with you, that's a business partner. What's the difference in your mind? Yeah, so I think you know anyone who currently has staff or maybe has worked for an individual entrepreneur before knows this. Your co-founder goes to war with you. And I think I said in my talk, there's someone who thinks about these problems when they're in the shower and when they're on vacation. And your staff don't do that. And rightfully so, to be frank. You know, it's not necessarily your staff's responsibility to be worrying for you on the weekends. When someone signs up to be an employee, they are there to deliver value based on the terms you set up, and then they go on and live their lives. And that's the trade. If you don't need someone to think about these problems in the shower and on vacation, then maybe you don't need this. Maybe you don't need a co-founder. And that might be most people. But I was not in that situation. I had hit a plateau. In fact, it wasn't even a plateau. It was a, this is, has serious risk of completely failing and me going back home. And if you're someone who maybe your situation isn't even that dramatic, but if you're someone who you have hit a plateau and you don't know what's next and you've tried a bunch of other things, you know, you have to have a really serious conversation with yourself. What do you want? How far are you trying to take this? How important is it for you to be in the driver's seat? Of course, there's financial components and incentives here, but there's a lot of like very emotional, very personal, very lifestyle-y things. Some people do not want to give up any control. Some people run businesses that run a negative profit every year, but they, they still do it because they want to feel like a boss, right? Being really honest with what you want is important here because aligning the incentives and getting people on board on like a co-founder level, it's very different than consultants or well-paid employees. Let me flag up an interesting sub-niche, and I might even include myself as part of this, but there's a lot of people, you mentioned not targeting well-adjusted people as a business partner. You mentioned targeting immigrants and psychopaths, which (laughs) it's very funny to me. And I think we all know what you mean when you say that, that there's something a little bit off about a lot of us that drove us to take the risk to say, hey... I'm a grown adult who's willing to sleep on my parents' couch in order to do this. So what is that oftentimes? Let's talk about it. Sometimes it means something just this simple that's often misinterpreted. You can't hold down a profitable job. 
Okay. Now, most people can. (laughs) (laughs) So you quit because you can't keep a job, because you don't show up on time, because you have too many damn good ideas and you don't follow the script, because you're disrespectful to your boss, because you think you're smarter than other people, because you have a crippling drug addiction. There's a lot of reasons you can't (laughs) hold down a job. Okay. So you quit and by necessity, you start a business that's doing pretty good or at least good enough that it could be attractive to a co-founder. A lot of people think they started a business because they're good at running businesses. But actually, it was because you were bad at having a job. Wow. So it's sort of interesting. You're blowing my mind right now. (laughs) I think you're right. It's a lot of people in this situation. And that's wonderful. You had this early stage bravery an incentive that is so rare in the world. You captured success and you did something with it, but now it's time to get someone more competent, more sensible involved. And that can often be the case here. You talk about this idea of fairness, that feeling of taking that enormous risk. I was going to go back and sleep on my parents. You know, I took all the risk here. It's not fair to let somebody in on this five years, three years into the game after I've really done all the hard work. Man, I, I felt this, Tommy, like this feeling of, I risked everything for this. You know, why am I going to go out and share it now? Why am I going to overpay others to get involved with what I, I worked so hard for emotionally? People get really caught up in fairness. And it's not even, it's almost like a moral, like religious, like biblical level almost, or depending on, you know, pick whatever God you want. But there's kind of this like, you sort of know in your gut when something feels unfair, when when you get cheated by someone and maybe you're traveling to a different country and you have to overpay for a cab, even if you like get overcharged by a few dollars, it feels way worse. I know that feeling. It feels way worse than a couple dollars. And I think this limits a lot of people. And it may have limited me if I wasn't so desperate to try and make this work. But what I found is I don't think fairness is real. I think fairness is something that's in our heads and is unattainable and it shouldn't really be considered. Paul Graham did have a, an interesting sort of Silicon Valley philosophy around this that I do think applies to lifestyle businesses, which is like when you're doing a deal, everyone should feel like they're getting underpaid a little bit. And that wasn't exactly how I structured it in these individual deals, but In the bigger picture, that is sort of how it is. Eduardo was kind of overpaid in the beginning. And as we moved on, he was kind of underpaid because his contribution was so huge. We did this now as well with our current CEO, Andre. We're kind of overpaying him now. And already I can tell he's going to be underpaid very, very soon. But that's the trade is that people get very worried about, is this fair in isolation? And the reality is, I think a better way to think about it is align the incentives get everyone pointed in the same direction, and take that risk. That's your job as the entrepreneur. You say this kind of phrase, overpay and ask for a lot. So in some ways, if we're taking like a cynical structural view of the setup you've come, you're borrowing an old classic standard trope from Silicon Valley, which is the promise of the equity payoff. And you're giving a lot right away to someone very capable. And you're extending the platform and the opportunity, and you're saying, double it, essentially. You're not saying, here's the SOP. And then what you're saying is eventually, if someone can actually do those things, paying them 20% as a dividend becomes a great deal. 
which will probably, if it happens chronically over the course of many, many years, you will have to revisit it. And I know that you have. One of the things that really popped out to me about your story, Tom, is you're telling it is like, I was like, I already got a co-founder. So cool that Tommy's talking. It's really interesting stuff. And then bam, the next co-founder comes in. I was like, oh man, like this talk is just, it grows. So this idea that you actually, this process worked so well, Eduardo appreciated it so much is that you guys re-perpetrated this idea onto a third partner. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked? When I kind of talked to you guys and uh, was talking to Jeff about doing this talk at DC Mexico and DC Mexico City and was looking at the, the history of what happened, I realized in putting this presentation together that we're doing the same loop again. We sort of grew the business to a certain point. We sort of hit a plateau. We had a staff member who was incredibly capable, much better than both of us at a very specific set of things for the next phase of the business. And we did the same thing. Eduardo and I negotiated in the same way, just on the same side now. And it is sort of a testament to the structure of the offer kind of, kind of working. We're doing it the exact same way. I sort of walked through my thinking with Eduardo and said, we were talking about salary and percentages and equity. And Eduardo kind of said like, yeah, but we're kind of overpaying, right? And I sort of walked him through and said, look, this is the second time I've done this. And think through how it was with you. Your point is like, look, what would actually incentivize you? It would have to be a pretty amazing deal. That's exactly right. You were head of SEO at, at Airbnb. It's not like you're just derping around somewhere like looking for an opportunity. That's another thing to consider. Maybe depending on what your pedigree is as an entrepreneur, maybe we were the people that were just derping around, you know? So you have to imagine that the person that is going to create results in your organization will have most likely created them elsewhere first. And so then coming up with a package that's sufficiently inspiring to them. And I can't stress this enough, Tommy. I think it's one of the things you really touched on. I think it's powerful is like, Good people have already done good things, almost always. That's a really good point. And I knew, Eduardo de-risked his situation by joining me, a company that was five years in and had a user base. But I de-risked my situation because I knew what he was capable of. I'd worked with him before. I'd seen what he'd done. I'd seen what he'd done with me in an apprenticeship, and I'd seen what he was doing at Teachable. And now that I think about it with our new CEO, it's the exact same thing. He's replicated these results at another company. And that de-risks my situation a lot as well. So you're right. There's no derp in here. That's for sure. <laughs> you end your talk with this statement that I think is sort of interesting. The sooner you stop lying to yourself about what you actually want, the sooner you're going to get it. Talk about why would one lie to themselves about what they want? What was that in your case? I mean, do we even tell ourselves the truth? I found, especially recently... I was, and sometimes still am, just lying to myself so much, so much. The stories we tell ourselves, this incessant need to be consistent with the narrative we have about ourselves, there's a lot kind of going on here. And if you get down to the raw, the raw wants and needs, it makes things a lot easier. No one would ever tell you this. But more than half of the people I met who raised money in San Francisco, I lived there for six years. I was definitely in that scene. And more than half the people I met that raised money there, they were doing it to get a TechCrunch article written about them. 
They will never say that. They will never admit that. I don't even know if that's necessarily bad. Maybe it's fine. But if that's really the goal, you can get there a lot of different ways than this grueling, awful, 5, 10, 15-year grind of working for other investors. And so I'm not even making a judgment on what you should want. I have no idea what you should want. But in your own alone time, when it's just you and the person in the mirror, I think it's very, very valuable to get hyper-specific around what you want and what this lifestyle business really is. Are you trying to exit? Are you trying to use it as a vehicle to travel? Are you trying to do something interesting? I don't know. But once you get there, it becomes a lot easier. It becomes easier to give away parts of the company. It becomes easier to let someone else drive if that's sort of aligned with what you're focused on. I've met a lot of people who their thing is look like an entrepreneur, be a boss, make sure everyone's reporting to them. And if that's what your goal is, bringing on someone as a co-founder to drive the bus for you is not a good idea because you're giving up a lot of that control. So I think being really, really honest with yourself and the story you tell yourself makes these decisions a lot easier. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us on the TMBA today. We hope you come back soon. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Big shout out to ClickMinded's Tommy Griffith. Yeah, what I thought about this, Ian, a couple things is when I first started hearing the talk, I was like, oh, well, you know, I got a co-founder. So cool to hear Tommy's story. But And then as Tommy went on and talked about how they built an alliance and brought on more people, you think about like, this is how empires are formed. This is how growth often happens is that you have to motivate effective people, effective leaders. It is the case that often the market, the product, your marketing, whatever it is, can be that driver of growth in your business. But so often it's the people around those things that identify those opportunities and shepherd them. And so there's a lot of different ways this stuff goes down. But if you find yourself at an impasse, coming up with clever ways to bring on stakeholders and people who share your vision, it's high level stuff. And it's not obvious always how to do it. It is not, Dan. You know, I can't help myself like when I hear Tommy's story and uh, similar things that are happening on the web these days, just like the amount of options that you have available to you now as a business owner is just amazing. Like the ability to liquidate your business, the ability to bring on partners, the ability to hire people, the ability to raise money. It's like none of these things hardly existed 10 years ago. And it just like blows my mind how much easier these things are to do today. I'm just grateful for that because I think it's going to open up a lot of different opportunities for people. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're like me, a little bit older, just had a birthday, know that it is way easier today to start a business and to thrive than I think it was 10 years ago. And the good news is, is I think that trend will continue to escalate, Ian. Almost everything I see on the internet about the future of internet business makes me bullish and makes me think we were maybe even earlier than we thought we were. I mean, it's not hard to imagine a world in which a huge percentage of society are essentially nodes for profit or one-person businesses connecting all these valuable resources to deliver goods and products and services to the rest of us. I think the other thing too, Dan, is that we really have to like be careful like the hills at which we're willing to die on, you know, like this bootstrapping idea. We have to make sure that we're adapting with the times. 
we were calling ourselves bootstrappers for the last 10 years or so now, but that term might not be relevant in the future. You know, we're seeing like all these different models pop up. I mean, Tiny Seed is an example. Rob Walling's group, you know, they're finding bootstrappers and bootstrappers are finding them. And then they're injecting a little bit of cash and a lot of knowledge. And then they're able to grow their business with that. It's kind of like this hybrid model, right? It's like, well, we are bootstrapped because we had revenue before we made it to Tiny Seed. And now we've got this little injection. And then maybe we'll continue to be bootstrapped. Maybe we'll raise around. Maybe we'll be huge. Maybe we'll go public. Who knows? Maybe bootstrapping just becomes like a stage. Maybe it's not like a permanent sense of a company. Yeah, I mean, our our ideas were born out of such a specific context where it's you move to San Francisco, you take money under some crazy terms that it it works out if you can take your Delaware C Corp, which has these little units called shares that only mean something when you go to this place called New York, which is on the other side of the world, and you ding the bell or whatever, and then all of a sudden it works out. And so we say, no, we're going to bootstrap, screw that, we're going to make good money online, we're going to take care of our families, we're going to travel around, we're going to have ultimate lifestyle freedom. Who knows, five years from now, that might look like me and you dropping a token where we can have shareholders that fund the project that everybody benefits and has voting rights. And like you mentioned, you got funds like Tiny Seed, much more agile, much more subtle, so to speak, much more ministering to what founders are actually looking for, a lot of us. I think the options for that are going to, especially the financialization options, are going to continue to become more sophisticated. Essentially, the companies that were registered by the US government, SEC or whatever, you know, they do that for good reason, I think, in part, but also because there's a lot of sophisticated things that happen around those companies. I think a lot of that sophistication is going to find its way to us. That's been the trend that we've witnessed. We used to talk about the micro multinational. We used to say, hey, all those things that the big companies could do, now we can do. But it wasn't everything, right? It wasn't the easy access to financialization. And I think that that's going to be a big trend here in the next 10 years. I think you nailed it, Dan. When us dummies got into this game several years ago, we were looking for lifestyle, right? We didn't realize that we were building financial instruments. And we built one, right? And then we're like, oh, I guess this is a financial instrument. I probably still didn't understand really what it was. The idea of these financial instruments is changing. Like you said, you build something in San Francisco and like sell it in New York, right? On the stock exchange. And the idea here is that like these financial instruments, they're changing and now they're becoming more available and legible to small businesses and people like us. And so it's exciting to see, especially, you know, with things like Web3, like, what we're going to call these things in the future, how they're going to act, who's going to participate. Tommy is a good example of somebody that's kind of changing the paradigm with uh, what's possible. Very cool. Well, that's it for this week. Any shameless plugs here at the end, boss man? We've got a holiday party, December 16th. Email me, Dan at Tropical MBA. If there's room left on the guest list, I will send you an invite. That's what I was going to mention too. I'm really looking forward to that party. I think we're close to locking down a venue. we got a list going. If you're going to be in Austin and you're good at telling jokes or you got some other kind of party trick, (laughs) definitely email Dan and we'll try and get you on that list. That's it. If you don't, we'll have a party back here in your earbuds next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. 
We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.